Hello, hello, welcome to the Drop the Stamp podcast. This episode's research topic is gonna be on magic squares, and who is better to solve the mystery of those fascinating mathematical designs than Ana Maria Perez, the top and best of category winner in mathematics at this year's ISAF. With her project in which she proved the conditions necessary for symmetry and corrected inconsistencies in previous work on magic squares she took home, Mu Alpha Theta National High School and two-year college mathematics on our society's first award, National Security Security Agency's Research Director's Second Place Award and the American Mathematical Society's Certificate of Honorable Mention. Anna Maria has a heart for the world of science. She also mentors younger science fair students and has attended MIT's Research Scientific Institute this summer. So I'm super pumped to have this conversation and uh, welcome Anna Maria to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. I'm really interested in your research. They say that mathematics is the poetry of logical ideas, and I can't wait to dive deep into what you've been working on. What are magic squares? Magic squares are this special configuration of numbers. You can imagine it like a box of Sudoku. So you know in uh, Sudoku how you have the numbers 1 through 9 in a 3 by 3 grid? Yes. And then you have that repeated. Well, just imagine this 3 by 3 grid, and you arrange the numbers so that each row, column, and diagonal all add to the same number. So, for example, in the case of a 3 by 3 magic square, kind of like you see in Sudoku, um, you'd arrange them so that they all, uh, all the rows, columns, and diagonals add to 15. But the ones I worked with more specifically were 4 by 4 magic squares. I see. So you have different sets of magic squares based on the sum of those diagonal lines. Is is that correct? Um, yes, based uh, what we call the order of the magic square. So that's um, this like the size of the matrix, because magic squares uh, mathematically can be expressed as a matrix, and so it's a three by three mat- matrix or a four by four matrix. So you have different orders of magic squares. I see. So it's a square grid. Filled with, I guess, only positive integers? Yes, um, consecutive integers, 1 to whatever number. Um, like, if it's a 3 by 3 square, then 1 to 9. If it's a 4 by 4, 1 to 16. Uh, as you've talked about it in your abstract, you stated first um, sentences of your abstract that, you know, they have studied these fascinating mathematical designs for a long time. So how long have they existed? They have been around thousands of years. I think the earliest known one um, was uh, found to be created uh, before the Common Era. Oh. So it's been a long time that they've existed. That's amazing. Even though they've existed for such a long time, you can still add to the knowledge that is already existent. And uh, you have definitely did that. So what was your novel approach in studying magic squares? What I did with magic squares is I came up with a new way to look at them and to uh, visually represent them. There's been various methods of visual representation, um, connecting the numbers um, in order, but um, my visual representation was a different technique. What it did was it represented the magic square on a circle. So it's kind of like connect the dots. If you go in order left to right on the magic square and you read the numbers of the matrix and then connect those on a circle, kind of like on a clock, 
you'll get these really visually interesting patterns. You spaced magic squares not on a square grid, but on a circle, and that's how you developed new theorems. I took the square, like magic square matrix, mm -hmm. and in a matrix, you can start counting the elements of the matrix. Yes. Um, a11, A12, A13, where like the two numbers 1, 2, 1, 3, etc., um, refer to the row and column. So you'll have these numbers, and then you have a circle kind of imagine like a clock if you have the numbers 1 through 16 on a clock, for example. Mm -hmm. So you'll connect um, the numbers 1 and 15 if 1 are, and 15 are the two numbers next to each other in the matrix. And so you don't actually see any numbers on this visual representation. You just see the lines on a circle. That sounds very interesting. And your method of classification applies to all orders of magic squares. So could you share about how you discovered it and eventually what new theorems were developed? Sure. So basically, this circular um, representation of the magic square sometimes has symmetry and sometimes it doesn't and you can and there's different kinds of symmetry based on what line it's symmetrical across and looking at this you can classify magic squares and because all magic squares can be represented on this circle it's very easy to um, just look at it and classify it as symmetric or not and what kind of symmetry. What I did was I looked at the symmetry and I found what the conditions were for the symmetry to exist and proved that um, magic squares would display the symmetry in certain cases and I was able to express it more mathematically. So after studying that, I uh, was able to generalize it and um, I created an upper bound for the most number of lines of symmetry that any um, magic square can display. I'm just interested when I'm hearing about the mathematical project that how did you reach the point when you knew that you gotta implement magic squares on a circle and develop and generate these new theories and watching them work so when was that spark you know during the research project um so last summer i took a summer history class and it was um four hours a day and the teacher would go on and on lecturing <laughs> about the civil war and so I like started doodling in my notebook and I began playing around with magic squares and um, I don't know why, it just occurred to me to try putting it on a circle. And the very first one I tried was symmetric. So I looked up other examples and started trying those. And what I didn't realize at first is that there's just a lot of very specific pretty examples if you Google magic squares. So all the ones I was trying were coming up um, symmetric. But uh, as I continued researching, I found that some weren't, some were, and that's when I wanted to start figuring out why they were or why they weren't, and in what cases they would or would not be. Now, pay attention to class is not the best advice if you want to <laughs> conduct research. <laughs> but uh... Yes, don't worry, I 
I paid attention for the most part. <laughs> but you know, you produced something magical, um, so to speak. I can see that you started playing, let's say, with magic squares, and out of trial and error, you produced symmetric magic squares, which is just awesome. And then that was the spark which led you on conducting research, and you were uh, working at the Albuquerque Academy uh, after that? Um, So Albuquerque Academy is my school, uh, but I worked with a professor at the University of New Mexico, um, Dr. Vasilev. He was my mentor in completing this project. I see, and taking it all the way to ISAF. Yes. <laughs> talking about ISAF, it only consists of four words, but it represents hundreds of new experiences and connections. So what was your ISAF journey like? Wow, okay, so ISAF is amazing it's a really really cool experience this was actually my fourth year attending um i it started actually um in phoenix as an eighth grade observer i got chosen from my region to um as one of the top two eighth grade projects so i got to go and experience it so it's kind of cool this year coming full circle back around to phoenix <laughs> um and so I don't know, it's just been really amazing. I've met so many amazing people who are just extraordinary and really inspiring, and some of my best friends, too. Like, I've kept in touch with people from Puerto Rico, Turkey, and all across the U.S., and they're amazing. I love them so much. That's so cool. So it was like a matrix, you can see, of reunions happening there, adding them yeah. up together. <laughs> I think in your ISAF interview, if I remember correctly, I read that you lost somewhere in Phoenix. Uh, what was that scene happening? Oh, um, so in Phoenix, in eighth grade, my mom and I found this pizza place that was kind of close to our hotel that was really fun and we really wanted to go back. And so um, along with my friend from Puerto Rico, we went exploring um, Phoenix, but we're on the other side of the convention center and there was construction. So the, the area wasn't very recognizable. And so we got lost. It took like three wrong turns trying to get back to that pizza place, but eventually we found it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you did find it. But I really understand your struggle. I imagine like the two buildings are so identical. So I don't blame you for getting lost for the first few tries. Yeah. Okay, what pizza did you order if you got to the pizza place? Actually, okay, so it's a pizza place. Um, but my mom and I ordered a salad because... Um, Yeah, that's what we did last time, and okay. it just became like a tradition. So we had to do it again. All the way for healthy food. Yeah. Yes. We've touched on this a little bit, but I always introduce a segment called Getting to Know the Person Beyond the Project Board. So what motivates you to conduct research and, you know, pushes you to, to carry on in times of facing obstacles? Because we all do face obstacles during um, doing a research. Yeah. So... I think I, there's several motivating factors. One, I just really enjoy it. And there's a certain sensation when you, like, find something new and figure it out. And it's a really good feeling. I really enjoy it. Um, and I guess what pushes me to carry on in times of facing obstacles? Um, just 
I think knowing that it's going to turn out fine, and I have, like, an amazing community supporting me and um, behind me when I'm researching and all of that stuff, that they encourage me to keep going and stuff like that. And even when I'm facing obstacles, I know I can count on the people around me to encourage me and really help with that. And just knowing that I can't always be, like, like it's okay to fail sometimes that you just have to keep trying and stuff Mm, that's so crucial that you have that support system behind your back I guess not only the professionals but your family members too who inspire you to do research yes family members and also my friends that I've made through ISEF it's so great to to share our struggles and we all reach a point when or like multiple points when, you know, something doesn't turn out the way we want it to. But then after getting the aha moments, it's just so good. You've attended four years of ISEP, so you really have a large support system of ISEP friends then. Yeah. You recently attended MIT's Research Scientific Institute in the summer. So could you tell us about the experience? You've actually just got back... Uh, a week or two ago? Yeah, I got back um, a little over a week ago. And, oh my God, it was beyond imaginably amazing. It was really great. Um, at ISEF, you make lots of uh, friends, but imagine those same kind of people, but like you get to know them for six weeks. ISEF Supreme. <laughs> yes, it was very cool. And... Um, it was just, yeah, we hung out for six weeks. We were conducting research under, um, I did um, a project under a graduate student at MIT, and I got to meet some really amazing and inspiring people. Some of them I had actually met before through ISEF, and yeah, they were all just really, really amazing people, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. I've never felt more at home somewhere. That's amazing. So what was your research on that you were during the summer? So I was doing research on a variation of something called the double cap conjecture. And um, basically it was this problem that originated in the AMS monthly journal um, that asked what the largest area is on a sphere that will not contain uh, two mutually orthogonal vectors if you point a vector from the center to a point on the sphere. So you want to contain this area so that you can't have um, two vectors that are perpendicular to each other. Just trying to, you know, visualize it. It's very hard to visualize without pictures, but um, diagrams really help. And yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And what was the result of conducting the project? So what we did is... We instead of trying to find the, that largest area, we tried. We explored um, the largest area that avoids three mutually orthogonal vectors. So instead of just two not being able to be per perpendicular, we wanted to find the area in which um, three could not be perpendicular. And so, in doing that, it was we found some really cool looking um, areas, and we have not found the largest yet, but. We found a clue that, um, to a configuration that may be the largest that actually builds off the original work done with the double cap conjecture. 
I see. So you added up the knowledge and you already got the hint to to find the largest surface. Yeah, but also it has to be proven now. And it hasn't been done for um, the double cap conjecture, which is why it's a conjecture still. We need to find like the equation uh, relating to it because turns out spherical geometry, like geometry on the surface of the sphere is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. And also not just studying it, but as you've said, writing an equation that describes it in a mathematical order. You are planning to work on that in the future, I guess? Yes, I'm going to be starting to work on this project with my mentor um, in Albuquerque um, coming up soon. Oh, okay. So school year is getting into full swing, yeah. I'm heading into my last year of high school, which means I'm in the middle of college app season, so... Oh, wow. But you are still going to apply to ISAF next year? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I love the community, love the people um, at my regional fair. There's no way I wouldn't participate. Sure. And, um, yeah, one thing I forgot to ask about the... MIT experience. I guess you had a little bit of time to look around Boston. Um, have you been to the area or was it something you recently discovered? Um, so I had never been to Boston before um, this summer, but I got a chance to look around with... Oh, my mom and I flew out a couple days early, went sightseeing, um, got soaked in the rain. <laughs> um, yeah, we toured uh, Fenway Park and... Um, visited some other cool areas. We got to see whales, so oh, really? that was amazing. That's so yeah. cool. It was actually a whale watching tour. We got to go out on a boat and uh, yeah, we got to see some whales. Yeah, it would be really like a long distance to, to see them from the shore for sure. <laughs> yeah, like a, an hour or two. Yeah, yeah, that takes a while. A whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've actually mentioned in your eyes of interview that the two last books you read the other einstein and the handmaid's tale i think they made a series based on that you know when the the women are wearing yes they did red okay but both focus on the oppressed situation of women could you share some of the messages that stood out to you the most in those books in the other einstein it was talking a lot about the hardships that einstein's first wife faced and how originally she was, she was uh, studying to be a physicist at the same university as Einstein. And she actually helped him with a lot and stuff like that. But they fell in love and um, she became pregnant with their first child. And rather than being a supportive um, father, Einstein kind of like shut them out. Oh. And so eventually... Uh, she moved back to be with him to try and foster the relationship so that her child would have a father. Mm -hmm. But um, it didn't really work out, and he kind of refused to be a father to this child. And this child actually died of scarlet fever. So then, in um, then later, they did have another child, um, I think two sons actually, if I remember correctly. She was left as in the role of caretaker, and he uh, would shut her out and um, not listen to her ideas of physics, and it wasn't the partnership they had originally created. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's 
the message that really stood out for me wasn't that you can't be both a mother and a scientist because that's what she tried to do. It's just that she really had to um, deal with this attitude that he had and she actually ended up leaving him, divorcing him, which was a big step during that time because not a lot of people did that in order to um, get away from the oppression. And similarly, in The Handmaid's Tale, they focus on how, um, in if you've seen the series, I'm not sure about the series, but in the book, um, the women are sorted into groups, and the handmaids are solely responsible for giving birth to children. That's their only role, and it discredits all the value that women have, um, intelligence, um, their ability to like function at the same level as men but it discredits that similarly to how Einstein discredited his first wife's um, abilities as a physicist. I actually haven't seen the series but the trailer and some of the interpretations I read online but I have not heard about you know Einstein's attitude towards his wife but I'm, I was just wondering while hearing your, your summary of the book was that that Einstein was no, solely ignorant towards the family or was it like a form of emotional abuse in regards to oppression? It was just completely it was, denying. It was very emotionally abusive to his wife. He'd have her walk behind him um, when they went out in public um, in a very subservient position. Um, he would not associate with her at some points acknowledged that she was his wife. He actually physically abused her at some point oh. and as well. So this is kind of like a, another side of Einstein. And this book does say that some parts aren't necessarily historical fact, but it's um, because they couldn't get all the details, obviously, of their personal life. So some of it was imagined. So as to the parts which are historical and which ones aren't, I'm not positive, but it is known that he was um, he was like this to his wife. Kind of saddening for me. I think the reason why also we don't have that much data is because the wife, because she was oppressed by Einstein, was not so vocal about what was happening in the background in regards to the family issues. Because when someone yes, is oppressed, exactly. then they are not allowed to talk. She had to remain silent. Think. Yes, but um, one, uh, I think, legal record that they do have is that after their divorce, she received any Nobel Prize money that he got because of her contributions to his Nobel Prize winning work that he didn't recognize her for. Oh, really? So she was compensated after it? Yes, after the fact, yes. I think that childbearing and, you know, giving birth to a child is such a beautiful way of viewing femininity. But when a male comes in who does not value this aspect, being someone who gives life to a human being, but oppresses them and solely try to put them in a box, put them away, and just solely entitle this role to them is the abusive behavior. is Or is the start yeah. of the abusive behavior. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale is a very extreme commentary on how women are treated sometimes, and obviously things are changing, so that's really great. Um, but it's also s slightly based on real-world accounts of things that have happened. 
So it's also a little terrifying when you put that into perspective. Of course, it's like a utopian representation. Yeah, just as you said, that it's built on real-life facts or what has happened. Talking about the issues of society we face today, um, there's a legal term, the Tsar, that you have absolute authority, or we can say that if you had a magic wand and could wave it and change something, whatever you want, what would you change in our society? Ooh, that's a tough question. There's obviously a lot of things um, that could be changed, could be improved. I think it would be easy to uh, all-encompassingly say, well, I'd um, uh, make everything peaceful, world peace. Easy, that'd be like the easy answer or something. But I guess uh, without getting too political, like more something more down-to-earth, I just, I think I would change um, the stereotypes uh, against science that um, only like super nerds like science or stuff like that or that um, girls can't get in, as involved in science because it's a guy's thing just like gender stereotypes um, and this overall attitude to science because I know several uh, people who say like oh I don't like math uh and stuff like that, and they just have this automatic bias against it without being able to see its beauty. So I guess, um, like, if people would be less judgmental towards that stuff. And it's really interesting that you brought these scientific stereotypes up, because when we're talking about math, I think that, of course, it's not necessarily a child's fault that they view mathematics in a way that like I don't want that and um, I don't want to take it in anymore because it's represented in a way that does not reveal to them the magic of, of and the beauty of math. Exactly. I think like it, it boils down to the educational level. Do you agree? Mm -hmm, exactly. If you're not um, really engaged and um, math isn't represented to you in a way that's um, mentally stimulating and exciting for a child, then they're going to start to find it as a burden. And if they, um, like, it's good to struggle with something, but I think because they struggle with it so much and it's not taught in the right way, that they find themselves hating it rather than loving it. I even heard while growing up, like, math, you can have a love or hate relationship and there is no other way dealing with it. <laughs> Girls like you in science who are rising up in the mathematics field because you are can be a role model for those younger science fair students or those younger students in general to look up to that hey I'm a girl and, and I can be interested in those fields like there are no limits to um, discovering my potential in mathematics for example. Yeah, definitely. I, I hope I can because I think um, when I was in middle school, there weren't a lot of other girls in my school who liked science or math, so I sometimes felt a little isolated. But I think if people see people around them doing um, this kind of work, they will be more motivated to do it themselves. Like I know it felt like that for me sometimes because I didn't see anyone um, at my school. I didn't ha like have any friends who did math or anything so that was a little tough for me and that's why discovering the science fair community um, the RSI community was so special for me because I found other people who really really loved math and science 
and most of all weren't arrogant about it. Like they were not boasting that, hey, I did that, hey, look at my medals. So that kind of attitude is non-existent. Exactly, yeah. The first time, like I remember when I went to International Science Fair, I had the feeling that finally I feel understood. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like you get there and all of a sudden there's like hundreds of people in a room who know what you're going through, understand you, won't make fun of you for doing science or um, being a high achiever or something like that. We are not gold diggers, but gold diggers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've entered the science fairs, but you are also giving back what you've experienced and learned during those experiences to younger students who go there, I think which is so valuable. Yeah, it's definitely a cool experience. I've been trying to implement a science fair program at my school because um, last year I was the only high schooler who participated in science fair. And there's my other children, uh, or yeah, other younger kids who participate at my school um, through a program that I've been trying to implement, um, the 6-7 Science Fair Club, to encourage um, young students to complete projects and um, really explore the scientific world. That's amazing. So you run a scientific club in your... 6th and 7th graders. Uh, was there a response? What has been your experience like so far working with them? So I think they really enjoyed it. Um, it was a challenge sometimes, honestly, uh, working with them because sometimes kids can be stubborn about things. And But I think they overall got a good experience out of it. I had um, uh, one kid who got a special award at my regional fair and another who made it to the state science fair. Um, hopefully they had a good experience with that. And I think they really enjoyed it on judging day the excitement the energy and all of that absolutely and they get to taste uh, a slice of science and i think that even though that there might be people who do not realize the significance of science maybe a few years later they will be like that i want to go down on that path because they had that initial relationship with science even though they didn't realize that it's going to be important for them at the time yeah, definitely. It also takes social skills to form those relationships with them because like, they are on the verge of not being a child but not being a, a whole teenager yet, so like in the gray zone of puberty. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Another aspect I wanted to touch on, that do you agree with that life is meant for great adventures? Uh, yeah, definitely. You just need to really live life to the fullest, not throw it away. You've been given one life, and it's very precious. And um, There's actually a poem we read at the beginning of last year in English class, and I think the last line was, what do you plan to do with this one precious life? And you want to explore. You want to make the best of it. Um, you want to have an impact on society. You don't want to um, live in vain. I 100% agree, because we've all been giving the unique sets of talents and gifts and also we can add up to that database and cultivate our skills and just learn about the world around us well you said it correctly that all the while trying to be the best version of ourselves we have to just look outside of the bubble and 
see where we can be a great asset, where to help others. Yeah, definitely. I can sense that you also have this outward perspective on life too. You are thinking that way, there must be someone you're inspired by. I really think I'm inspired by the people around me because, I don't know, for me they're really... Seeing other people around me doing these great things makes it feel like it's real, like it's tangible, like it's possible to make an impact on the world and just have a great um, have a great impact. And so I'm really inspired by the people around me in my uh, day-to-day life, the people I've met at ISEF, the people I've met at RSI, um, just that they're able to do these amazing things. It makes it feel close to home and... It's very inspirational for me. Yes, because you were talking about gender stereotypes and it might sound funny, but do you remember the film Legally Blonde? Yes, I do. (laughs) I've seen it. And did you like it? It's a fun movie. Sometimes um, some scenes can be a little ridiculous, but it's all for the comedy of it and it's a cool message. They all think about her, the Don Blonde kind of stereotype and also her boyfriend is in the beginning is trying to belittle her but she works all the way, mm-hmm. her way up and you know finds a guy who appreciates her talent and does not look down upon her so very subtle modern uh, version of the Einstein story when the, the, the girl actually makes it to the top. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Being acquainted with those stories can help in one's journey too. Even if it's like a Hollywood movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, like discussing the future with great minds who come on the podcast just like you. So what is your ultimate goal in life? My ultimate goal is just to know that I've made an impact on the world that, um, that when I'm remembered... Um, that people will remember me as someone who did something good. It doesn't even have to be like a gigantic impact, like winning the Nobel Prize or something. It's just an impact that people will remember me and say, yeah, she really had an impact on my life. She was an amazing friend, an amazing leader, an amazing, just that I know that I've, really helped make the world a better place. That's so beautifully put. You left a legacy and you created something that you'll be remembered for. And I think that it's just so crucial that you have that future plan, that it's something greater than yourself. You are gonna bless, you know, the future generations with what you're doing present. And I think that can be really motivational. Thank you. For the end, I prepared a little bit of this or that game section. Okay. So, of course, you gotta choose either or. So the first question is gonna be related. Quesadilla or tacos? Oh, that's a really tough one. Oh my god. (laughs) Um, Oh my god, these are like comfort home foods. Um, (laughs) Oh... It depends. See, if I'm making it at home, quesadillas. But if I'm in Mexico, tacos. Tacos all the way. Oh, so you're from Mexico then? My dad's from Mexico, yeah. But I'm from New Mexico. The second one is painting or singing. Wow, these are really tough questions. I really enjoy both painting and singing. I take art classes in school. But you can find me like singing to myself 
a lot. That was one thing about RSI. Um, my counselor group at random times would just break out into song. Oh, really? So, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed both. But if I had to choose one, I'd probably go with singing just because um, I just do it like every day, come to myself while I'm working or whatever. Okay, and what were you singing at RSI? Which song? We sing everything. Everything from uh, A Whole New World from Aladdin to... Um, oh, that's Limiz. so nice. <laughs> yeah, anything you can imagine. We'd have like late night sing-alongs get kicked out of the dorms uh, from singing too much. So I guess, I suppose, you watch a new Aladdin movie. Yeah, <laughs> it was really good. Yes, it was such a good remake. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really did too. <laughs> I really like the song, which Naomi Scott sang Beachless, which is like an addition. Yeah, I did too. That was actually um, one of the songs that uh, me and my friend um, sang a bit together. Uh, I didn't know the lyrics as well as she did, but um, yeah, it was one of her favorite songs. And so I got a little better acquainted with it over the summer. That's so cool. Yes, I can imagine. And it also represents a great message, which we're gonna, you know, just go back to the conversation we had on women and the, the situation of women. The third question is Chipotle or Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A. Chipotle is fake Mexican food. <laughs> okay. Uh, what would your order be at Chick-fil-A? A kid's order of chicken nuggets. Um, also because they remind me of my sister. Oh. If that makes any sense. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, because yeah, she's petite and, you know, cute like nuggets. Uh, little sister's um, 15, but she last year, like, went on an obsession with Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets, and all the time she'd be like, I got my nugs. And so she, like, Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets now just always remind me of her. Oh, so that's so cute. <laughs> Sharing the emotional bond through food. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a lot of posts that... There's this new drink order. You add half diet lemonade and half sparkling drink. I've never tried it, but they say it's like the bomb. Oh, interesting. I'll have to try it sometime. I usually just order the lemonade because they have pretty good fresh squeezed lemonade. Make sure to send me a review afterwards. <laughs> Definitely. Now, a little bit of travel. Would you go to Asia or Europe for vacation? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, but I've always really wanted to visit Europe. Okay. So probably Europe. I'd like to visit both eventually, but one maybe Europe. And have you thought about which country would be your like dream destination inside of Europe? One that I've always wanted to visit um, a lot is Spain. Um, not only because of the beautiful culture and area, but also because um, I speak a little Spanish. So it would be cool to try and communicate there. And I feel like uh, it would be less like me being that one tourist who doesn't understand the language or anything. And I could try and actually um, communicate there. Sí, sin lugar a dudas, puedes hablar en España. Sí. Solo entiendo un poquito, pero puedo hablar un poquito en español. Es solo que yo he aprendido en escuela y en mi casa. Ah, yo entiendo. 
pero pues viajar a ese país sería una buena oportunidad para practicar tu español y comunicar a la gente. Sí, sí, yo he ido a México dos veces en viajes de intercambio a Chihuahua y Guadalajara y estas experiencias eran muy... Increíble, o no sé. Increíble, sí. ¡Qué bueno! Entonces tienes experiencias extranjeras también. Okay, so for the listeners, we discussed that you were, so you want to visit uh, Spain, you know, to, to have conversations with the people there, but you also been to Mexico. Yeah, because my dad's from Chihuahua. The fifth one is paperback book or ebook? Paperback. Love the smell, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, it just creates a different feeling with the advancements of technology. You can download hundreds of books, but it's still a different thing when you're actually holding it in your hands. What does science mean to you? Science is just, it's an amazing thing because there's so much yet to discover and it's a mystery that we're still working on covering and I don't think we'll ever be able to fully understand it, but just trying to and discovering new things and getting closer to understanding new inventions, um, creating new things, exploring. It's very much a creative process um, as well as just, yeah, it's very cool. Science is so much more than what we could express here with our limited understandings of it. And I think that it has always something more to offer. Yes, definitely. And that you are solving beautiful part of science trying to understand the mathematics which just makes up all things around us yeah definitely um my project was in recreational mathematics so it was a little more on, um less on the like relating to the world around us side but it's still very cool very beautiful that these patterns exist so naturally and and who knows i i'm not sure about this part that maybe the laws written in magic squares might be observed in nature, but that must be like a really dumb way of thinking about it. It's possible. Um, we're not really sure, <laughs> but it could be. There's um, one thing with magic squares. If you were to stack weights on a square in proportion to the number like detailed by the magic square, it would all balance out. So that's a cool property wow. like, physically of magic squares. Yeah, it's kind of random, but and kind of not that useful, but it's something that um, you can see in nature with magic squares. You know, I think that all facts are useful in science, but in different aspects. It might not be like closely related to our everyday life. It, it just still reveals the beauty of it all. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for coming. I, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, I know that the college application process is coming up for you. So I know that you are going to do amazingly and I'm cheering you on and on to your next future scientific adventures as well. Thank you very much. You can find us on Instagram at Drop the Stamp Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.